Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. In looking at the subject of uh, the authority of the Son, we're going to explore a little bit more in detail the, the core issue of the great controversy. The core issue of the great controversy. Great controversy is a theme that uh, we, particularly as Adventists, are very familiar with. We talk about it a lot. It's, it's, uh, it's a very common aspect of how we refer to this battle between good and evil. And the great controversy is not just about the book called the great controversy. It's about this battle between Christ and Satan. What, what are the issues in this great controversy? What's it all about? There is a very common idea as to what the issue of the great controversy is all about. And that is, it's about the law of God. So today we want to look at it from scripture and see what the issue really is all about, about this great controversy and what we can learn. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of the Son of God and particularly the authority of the Son. Because really the great controversy, it's a battle of authority. Whose authority are we going to recognize? This is really what the whole thing boils down to. And we're going to look at it in detail and uh, see how the Sonship of Christ actually figures very largely in that. The Sonship of Christ, the whole gospel is really centered and focused on the Sonship of Christ. It's who he is, it's his identity, it's what sets him apart. And, uh, and this is what uh, the scripture brings out. Matthew, for example, 1 and verse 1 tells us, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes on to list the genealogy of Christ to, and, and it goes through all these names. And sometimes we skip over that or some of these names are a bit hard to pronounce, you know, and it almost seems like a bit of a boring start to, to the Gospels. Matthew is the first Gospel, at least in the order we have them today. And uh, sometimes you skip that to get to the story. Where is the story? There's something very important Matthew's doing. He's establishing that Christ, the Messiah, is a human being. He's from the line of David. He's from the line of Abraham. A very important uh, prophetic fulfillment. He's proving that he is really a man, a human being like one of us. He goes to the great detail of listing all his ancestry, his, his lineage. And the same thing happens in the other gospel accounts in Luke. This is what it tells us, Luke 3.23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. And verse 38 tells us, which was, at the end of that list, which was the son of Enosh, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. It, it, it traces the genealogy of Christ his human genealogy, and this time we understand it's through, through, uh, through Mary. This is why the, there is a bit of a difference in some of the names in the lists there. And it goes all the way back to Adam. It says Adam, who was the son of God, proving that Christ was a human being, just like us, born like we are all born from parents, uh, you know, that trace all the way back uh, to Adam. Of course, Luke is writing to uh, a Gentile friend of his, so... Uh, the focus and emphasis is not on Abraham and on David as much, but it traces Christ back all the way to Adam, that he is one of us in the greater scope of humanity. Now, these two gospel writers give this detailed genealogy of the humanity of the Son, proving that he is the Son of Man, 
And this is why the humanity of the Son, we're told, is everything to us as a people. But before Christ became a human, before he was the Son of Man, Christ was already the Son of God. Now, the interesting thing is, the other two gospel writers give his divine genealogy at the introduction of the gospels as well. Mark 1.1 tells us, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of of God, there it is. That's the end of the list. Because it's, a not, it's not a long list like the human one, right? That's the counterpart. What Mark is doing is he's giving us the divine genealogy. Christ is the Son of God. And we saw earlier that he's not the Son of God in the same way that Adam was the Son of God. He was the only begotten. Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And uh, the last one, John, of course, uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, emphasizes again this divine aspect of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Again, it's a very short listing as to the divine heritage and lineage of Christ. He was with God from the beginning because he was the Son of God, and that's what makes him divine. Very interesting picture we have between the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke give us his human genealogy, Mark and John give us his divine, making a beautiful, complete picture. Isn't that neat? That's, that's how the Lord set it up. That's, that's quite, uh, quite amazing. And so it's important for us to realize that this is the core, this is the heart of the gospel. This is how God has designed and planned this wonderful salvation plan. It's all centered in this one person, Jesus Christ. And the whole great controversy is actually centered in the same person. The issues in the great controversy center around the person of Jesus Christ, as we shall see. Now, I want to uh, read, share with you also a quote here that, that's of interest as to the importance of the sonship of Christ. And uh, this is from the youth's instructor in uh, 1897. And this is what it says. Dear young friends, are you prepared to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world? To say, as did Nathaniel, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. You would do well to contemplate this sacred and eternal truth most earnestly and prayerfully, until your whole being becomes imbued with its greatness. We are too apt to view truth as a whole and see only the surface, when if we could, would ponder them, pray over them, and put to the stretch every mental power, we might understand, for God would give us wisdom, as he did to Daniel, our spiritual senses will be quickened to understand the deep things of God. Interesting comment talking about this aspect of Christ being the son of God, as Nathaniel declared him to be. Uh, we are to ponder that. We are to, to pray over that, to meditate on that and see that there are some deep things of God contained in this truth. In other words, the sonship of Christ is a foundational pillar truth that is of great, great significance. This is what it's saying. And it's important for us to try and study that. So we're going to go a little bit deeper. We don't want to just, okay, prove that he's the son of God. We're going to build on that a little bit more and see, well, what other things can we learn about that? Some of these deep things of God. The sonship of Christ is one of these deep things. And when we talk about the deep things of God, uh, they are beyond our full comprehension. The deep things of God. The Bible tells us that, you know, it's, it's beyond understanding. But it doesn't mean that we cannot catch some glimpses as we seek. The Bible says, ask and you will 
receive, right? So this is what we want to do. We want to seek and see what we can learn because it actually helps us appreciate more of the love of God, the love that God has for us and appreciate what are these issues that are involved in this great controversy. Each one of us wants to be on the winning side in the great controversy. No need to ask you to put your hands up if that's the case. Your presence here today indicates that. Each one of us wants to be on the winning side. We know what the winning side is. We know the end of the story already. Prophecy indicates that for us. But what are the issues involved? What is that like day to day living? And this is why we want to look at the authority of the sun, because that is the core issue in this great controversy. Before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. I'm not sure if you ever wondered about this, but this is the question. Why did God have a son? You ever thought about that? And, you know, in, in traveling and, and in meetings and different places, you know, the after lunch discussions or in the fellowship time, this is a question that comes up a lot, especially when we talk about the sonship of Christ. You know, why did God have a son? And then there is a, a follow-up question. Why did he only have one son? Okay. Uh, the answer is not given to us in the Bible. It doesn't give us a verse that says God had a son because of this or because of that or, or the other thing. And so it's, it's a topic of, of discussion and a lot of people have suggested some very interesting, uh, plausible, very plausible reasons as to why God had a son. And uh, the only thing is what might seem plausible to us does not necessarily mean it's how God thinks. God tells us, you know, that his ways are above our ways, as heaven is higher than the earth. But why is it that God had a son? Now, it wasn't because of any lack on the part of God uh, or a need as such, because God is God. He, he, he has all power. He has all authority. Everything there is, uh, you know, he's, he's omnipotent. He's all these descriptions that we use of God. So what is the reason? Can we learn something of that? Uh, before we, we get into some, some of the things that the scripture tells us, I want to put to you the most common reason that I have heard from people as to why God had a son. And you might be familiar with this. Maybe this is how you believe it or how you understand it. But the reasoning goes something like this. God in his wisdom and foreknowledge foresaw that man would fall, that there would be a need for a plan of salvation. And so God had a son to take care of that eventuality when it happens. You familiar with that reasoning? I'm not going to ask you if you believe that. But uh, I've heard that a number of times. And you know, many times I heard that it just bothered me. I'll tell you why it bothered me. Because it sounds like a very awful thing to do, that God had a son in order to sacrifice him. Now, I want to explore this a little bit, and I want to see, is there something deeper that we can learn about the sonship of Christ and his relationship with the Father? The passage we're familiar with from the Old Testament, one of the clearest ones, is Proverbs 8, 22 to 27, where Christ speaks here through Solomon under the title of Wisdom. And this is what he says. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no mountains, abandoning, fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. 
While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. Christ, under the title of wisdom, talks about when he was brought forth, or when he was born, or when he was begotten, before anything was ever made. And so that when things were made, he already was there, working, helping, and a little later, as it says, he's, he was as a master craftsman with the Father. And in talking about this wonderful truth that we're told to contemplate, this central pillar truth, the sonship of Christ, of all the things or of all the, the descriptions that the God desired to use, he used this wisdom. In other words, the fact that Christ is the Son of God is a manifestation of God's wisdom. There are many titles that Christ has, right? But interesting enough, God chose the, the wisest man that we know of, outside of Christ, of course, Solomon, to record this important event. And it's recorded that when Christ was brought forth, this is the wisdom of God. It tells us something. God's wisdom is unsearchable. There's something very profound about the fact that Christ is the begotten Son of God. That is a revelation of God's wisdom, God's infinite wisdom. And this title that he holds is an important one. Here is a comment on this verse, just to give us a little bit you know, to, to put us in our, in our place, to, so to speak, to help us realize that there is a lot more here that we could understand and even beyond that. This is what it says in Selected Messages, book one. And, and it quotes this passage we just read, Proverbs 22, uh, 8, sorry, verses 22 to 27. And then it says the following, There are light and glory in the truth that Christ was one with the Father before the foundation of the world was laid. This is the light shining in a dark place, making it resplendent with divine original glory. This truth, infinitely mysterious in itself, explains other mysterious and otherwise unexplainable truths, while it is enshrined in light, unapproachable and incomprehensible. Wow. That's, that's uh, pretty profound. That in this truth that Christ was one with the Father, this sonship of Christ, because that's what makes him one with the Father. That Christ was with the Father from the beginning. It says it's infinitely mysterious. It explains other things, but it is a profound, deep truth. In other words, we can't fully grasp it, especially now here on earth in our fallen condition. But as we catch glimpses of it, as we meditate on it, as we seek to understand these deep things of God, we can gain Insights, beautiful insights that can actually help us understand and appreciate more of God's love and the issues in this great controversy. And so there is a reason why Christ is speaking under that title, the title of wisdom. And this is, it basically reveals that his birth from the Father is the wisdom of God. What does that mean? This infinite wisdom of God that is beyond comprehension. 1 Corinthians 1.24, notice what it tells us. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What does Paul mean when he says that? Christ is the wisdom of God. This is why we're saying when in the book of Proverbs talks about wisdom, it's not talking just about the attribute of wisdom that God has. It's talking about the fact that God had a son and in his son, this is his wisdom manifested and revealed. What does that mean? 
And linking those two is important. That's why we're exploring the wisdom of God. Then we're going to look at the at Christ being the power of God because he's both and both are actually linked. And that's important for the great controversy to understand the issues that Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God. But when he was born, the title that is used there is he is the wisdom of God. That's first. That's the foundation. That lays the groundwork, of course, for him being the power of God as well. So I just at the outset, I'm going to tell you, we uh, this is not a study to exhaust this topic. Okay, I'm just letting you know, this is we're going to just peer into it and see what we can learn. But there is a lot more beyond that. Uh, God has not revealed everything about himself to us. We're going to be spending a lot of time in heaven, exploring some of these deeper things. But what he has revealed, we can gain deeper insights. That's what the Spirit does. It reveals to us the deep things of God. <clears throat> God delighted in his son when his son was born. He was the express image of his person. He was in all the brightness of his majesty and glory. God saw in his son a reflection of his, any, of his very own perfection. Proverbs 8.30 tells us that. Continuing from that passage, this is Christ speaking. He says, Then I was by him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. In Christ, God saw the beauty and perfection and the excellence that dwells in himself. Christ is called the very wisdom of God. The embodiment of the wisdom of God was Christ. And when it says here, master craftsman, uh, in the King James, it actually says, then I was by him as one brought up with him. But as a master craftsman, it's actually a more accurate translation of that passage. Because the idea that it has given rise, that, that phrase in the King James uh, has given rise to, to a misunderstanding. It says, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And some people have concluded that Christ, you know, was begotten like our children are begotten as babies. And as you bring up your child, uh, I've heard some people say Christ was brought up by the father in that sense. Uh, that, that's not the picture. That's not the, the point that's being made. The point that's being made is he was with the father as a worker, working in all these things, works of wondrous works of creation. When Christ was begotten, Christ was begotten in the express image of the father's person. He didn't grow up into that. Okay, he was the wisdom of God. He wasn't, you know, it's very different to how we're born. Okay, I just want to clarify that. That's why I put uh, Master Craftsman there. That's from other translations that bring out the meaning a little better. And in John 3.35, this is what we're told. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hands. Of course, when John the Baptist said this about Christ on earth, this is not a, a principle that simply applies on earth. This is not something that only applies on earth. Christ obtained a complete inheritance from his father, from his birth, before anything was ever created or made. He was not, there was no deficiency in him in any way, shape, or form. And this is why we're saying the, the idea of being brought up, just like when our children are brought up, uh, that's, that's not the picture God is, is seeking to portray uh, to us. His divine birth meant that he received all things from his father. He was the full wisdom of God. He wasn't a part of it. He wasn't a fraction of it. He was the complete wisdom of God. There was nothing more that God could add to the perfection that Christ had as his only begotten son. This is what we mean when we talk about his divine inheritance. This is why we emphasize his sonship because that is the greatest evidence for his divine perfection and his deity. 
you know, a lot of people go to a lot of trouble trying to prove Christ is divine by saying, look, he does all these divine things. He, he forgives or he creates and all these acts of divinity, Christ does them, that proves his divinity. Christ is not divine because he carries out divine activities. He carries them out because he is divine to begin with. These don't prove who he is. They demonstrate who he is. His divinity is based on his sonship, not on what he does. You're not a human because you act like one and talk like one and look like one. You're a human because you were born that way. And so the sonship of Christ is the wisdom of God. And it's interesting because, you know, when that's in place, as we read in the quote earlier, it explains many other truths. It's the key uh, to unlock them. And of course, as a loving son, he was subject to his father, recognizing that his father was the source. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 tells us that, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that's the father, that God may be all in all. The timing and the context of this passage is at the end when sin and death are finished and put down and everything will be restored. And the, the universe will be free from sin. The great controversy will be over. Everything is finished. This is the condition of how things will be. The son will be subject to the father. And here's the question. If everything will be restored, does that give us an insight as to how things were before sin entered? The answer is yes. See, if everything will be restored perfectly to how it was, and when that happens, Christ will be subject to the Father, it indicates that that's how Christ was before sin even entered. As a loving son, he was subject to his Father. He recognized that his Father was the source of everything that he is. And so, that's why it says in Proverbs, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The, the verse we read in John that refers to Christ as the word of God indicates that relationship. Because some people you say this say, no, 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 this is after sin, not before. And they will insist that this verse only applies after sin. Christ was never subject before. Uh, the title that we have for Christ in John 1, 1, that he is the word of God. That title gives us an insight as to this relationship that he has with his father. Our words are subject to our thoughts. Well, they should be. Some people don't have that down pack very well, right? Sometimes you speak before you think. You have that problem. I have it sometimes. That God is, uh, is giving us the perfect picture, the ideal. Christ is the word of God. In other words, he is the expression of God's thought. So just as our words are to be subject to our thoughts, Christ is subject as the word of God to his father. The source of what he shares is his father. And so that sub uh, relationship of being subject is right there in, in the Gospel of John. This spells it out, but... Uh, being the word of God indicates that to us as well. And so when God was going to create uh, moral, free moral agents and give, give uh, his creatures this great gift of freedom of choice, God was uh, contemplating something. You see, uh, the, the gift of freedom of choice is the greatest gift that God has bestowed on his creation, on his creatures. By far the greatest gift. It is only surpassed when sin came in, it's only surpassed by the gift of his son. And the gift of his son is actually given and done in this way to preserve the gift of freedom of choice. You realize that? That's how important it was for God that his creatures would have freedom of choice. That's why he designed a plan that would not override or bypass freedom of choice. It would still maintain it. And so this is why we're told in the end when 
uh, iniquity will not rise another time. You're familiar with, with that promise. Uh, why is that the case? Is it because God is going to remove freedom of choice? No. Well, what does that mean? Could, is there theoretically a potential of someone choosing to sin? Yes, there will be that freedom. But no one will do it. Why? Because God designed a plan whereby he, everybody is convinced of the sinfulness of sin. And to choose that would be utter foolishness. It would be death. And so everyone will exercise their freedom of choice to not choose that. And so that gift is maintained throughout eternity. And the only way that God could figure out a plan to maintain freedom of choice and save us was through the gift of his son, the offering of his son, the wisdom of God. But we're, we're, we're still at the beginning. We're not into the sin problem yet. We're dealing with, with things a little bit before sin. In a perfect universe, in a perfect universe of free moral agents, when God would create these beings, they would not be created, of course, with, with perfect knowledge of everything. We get a little bit of, a, of an insight uh, when we read about some of the things that, uh, you know, about Adam. Adam was not created with perfect knowledge. He was perfect being, but he would learn. Right? He would learn about God and we're told that, you know, angels would come and explain certain things to them. They had to explain to them what happened in heaven and the war and so on and so forth. And so if you, if you apply the same thing, when, when God created his, his beings, he created them to have freedom of choice and so that they could learn more and more about him. And so there needed to be some kind of a system in place whereby all these beings with free choice could learn about God in a way that they could become like him. Because God did not create robots, right? And, and freedom of choice includes and incorporates learning. That's how you actually learn, by making choices, by choosing. And that becomes how your character is formed. What is the principle of learning that we have that is laid out in the scripture? Where we can learn about God. It's in 2 Corinthians uh, 3.18. It says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is a very important principle. It's not just a principle that applies to us. And what it is is simply this. We are changed by beholding. We learn by beholding. Uh, if you're a parent, you have a child, uh, you know the three most important rules for children learning from parents are the it's, it's important for parents to know that i'm a i'm a i'm a new parent our, our baby girl has just passed her her first birthday and so this is important to remember for me and for everyone first one the first way that children learn is by example right okay everybody knows that that's good what's the second one it's also example and you know what the third one is it's, it's example <laughs> And what, what uh, the point is simply is, is we learn most. It's built into us that by beholding, we change. We copy what we see. It's interesting. And no matter how much I tell my daughter stuff, you know, she, she, we don't communicate yet. She doesn't talk yet, but she watches and she copies. Example is very important. So I, as her parents, we have to be very, very careful what we do because she copies. What we say, it doesn't matter as much. It's what we do. This is a system that God has built in for free moral agents, how they can grow and how they can mature. It's by learning, and learning is by observation. And this is what the scripture tells us. By beholding, we are changed. This is why it's important to ask ourselves the question, what do we behold? How do we behold Christ? 
how we behold him, we are changed. If we behold him as he is presented in the scripture, that has an effect on us. If we behold him in a different way to how he is presented in the scripture, that has an effect on us. There is no doubt about that. It's not just a simple matter of, oh, we believe it a little bit differently. It will have an impact. But in a perfect universe, how was God going to teach these intelligent beings about him, these free moral agents? And the way that would happen is through the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God in having a son. You see, <clears throat> these beings needed to learn how to be subject to God, right? They needed to learn how to love God, how to worship God, how to love each other, how to serve each other. There's no sin here, right? This is in a perfect world. How would they learn that? How would God teach them that? He can't just sit them down and tell them, this is what you do. This is how you act. This is how you behave. The system of learning is by beholding. And this is where the wisdom of God comes in. They would behold the wisdom of God, or they would behold his son. In seeing his son and the relationship between the son and the father, and seeing how the son interacts with the father, how the son relates to the father, how the son is subject to the father, how he is daily his delight. They would actually learn what it is like to be like that because that is being modeled or patterned to them. You with me? And so this is why we're saying by beholding, we are changed. That's why the Bible tells us Christ is the brightness of the Father's glory. And this is what they would learn. Second Corinthians 4, 6. Notice how all these things, Christ is still that to us when he came as a savior. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is this only on earth? Is this only applicable when Christ came as a savior? No, the light of the knowledge of God has always been in Christ. Even in a perfect universe. This is how these beings would learn more and more about God and approximate to him and be more like him. Colossians 2.3 tells us, speaking of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Did that only happen when Christ came as a man? Of course not. He was the wisdom of God in a perfect, sinless universe. In him was hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was the treasure house. He was the library of God's wisdom. And as these beings would look at Christ, they would learn more and more about God. Well, someone might say, well, why? Why would you need Christ? Why can't they just look at the Father? So if we take Christ out of the picture for a minute, if these beings, all these you know, creatures with free choice, if they would look at the Father and Christ is not there, what would they see? And what would they learn? They would see a being who does not submit to anyone, right? Who does not need anything from anyone. Who worships no one. So what would they become? Independent, subject to no one, need nothing from anyone, and serve no one. Or, or how would they learn even worship? You with me? And God is not going to teach them by sitting them in a class and telling them, okay, this is how you behave in the universe. God's classroom is by beholding, you are changed. And so in his wisdom, 
First thing that ever happened, God had a son. And you only need one son to demonstrate that. And so he had his only begotten son. And this is why he is known as the wisdom of God. And as all these creatures, all these being, beings look at the son, they learn more of the father because the son is revealing aspects of the father that even the father himself, just by looking at him, you will misunderstand. You see, we cannot be like God in every aspect. It's absolutely impossible for us, and it's not even expected from us. Because we cannot become God. We are creatures. So how do we learn how to become creatures? This is the position of the sun. The sun models that to a perfect universe. In other words, he is the one that actually is the great educator for a perfect universe. That's why before anything was ever created, the first thing that happened was God had a son. And his plan for his son was a good one, a perfect one for a perfect universe. I want to keep that in mind uh, because that's, uh, that's important, as, as we shall see. Now, uh, this, is, this is what it says in this quote. Well, let's, let's read this quickly. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. From the days of eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ was one with the Father. He was the image of God, the image of his greatness and majesty, the outshining of his glory. It was to manifest this glory that he came to our world. To this sin-darkened earth, he came to reveal the light of God's love. To be God with us, therefore it was prophesied of him, his name shall be called Emmanuel. But he was the outshining of God's glory from the beginning. It's because he was that, that's why he's the only one who was qualified to come and reveal that to us. He did not become that just when he came to earth. It's because he was that. He was the wisdom of God. He was the only one who could reveal that fully. That's what qualified him to be the only savior when we lost that knowledge of God. And so... In a sense, he was the teaching tool for the universe. This is what the wisdom of God is all about. Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him, that's Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Think about that for a minute. God did not create everything for himself. God created everything for who? For his son. And the one who actually, uh, or the, the agent, or the one through whom God created everything for his son was the son himself. So everything was created by him and for him. That's how much the father loves the son. He's given all things into his hand, not just his inheritance. He made a whole universe for him. We don't know how big the universe is. They try and tell us the universe is expanding or places and nobody's ever been to these places they just have all these amazing theories and and i'm sure a lot of it is true i'm sure a lot of it is made up too uh you know because the universe is just vast and made up i mean there are a lot of theories there are theories that no one can test except christians they can test that in the next life in the kingdom yeah it's it's unlimited the whole universe is vast it's beyond our comprehension if you study a little bit about you know, space and the stars and, and the vastness of it, it's, it's absolutely mind-boggling. And that's only the part of the universe that we can see. We don't know about the part that we don't know about. All these things were made for his son. Why for his son? So that his son would show them what God is like. The, the son delighted. He was the father's delight. And it's his delight to do the things that please the Father. That's what he said on earth, right? Uh, I do always those things that please him. 
this is how he was. And one of the, the, the most outstanding things is to reveal the wisdom of God, what Christ was, the wisdom of God, to reveal that to the whole universe so the whole universe can learn about this amazing, incredible God, the Father, who is the source of all things. And so Christ uh, is the one that holds all these things together. And uh, the whole universe is hinged on the person of Christ. The next verse actually tells us that by him all things consist. Or as other translations put it, hold together. He was the one holding everything together in that bringing it in a harmonious way to function and operate in a manner that would resemble God's character. Because it's working on free choice. It's not pre-programmed. That's what free choice means. Free choice means you're not pre-programmed to operate in a certain way. It wasn't a computer software. God made it and just runs like clockwork. No, it was free moral agents who could make choices. They could make right choices, but they could also make wrong choices. And we'll see what happened when that wrong choice was made by Lucifer. But we're just putting the background here first. Notice how Jesus put it to Pilate when he was on earth. Very interesting verse, John 18, 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. What was Jesus talking about? Was he just talking about his birth on earth? Jesus was bearing witness to the truth as the divine Son of God, as the wisdom of God. He was dispensing the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge to a perfect universe. A very, very unique position. That's definitely unique. Nobody else holds that position as the Son of God. It actually gives us a little bit of an insight as to the importance of Christ's position as the Son of God in a perfect universe. And an insight as to God's design in a perfect universe. God never intended for sin to happen. He had measures whereby he could, you know, uh, redeem when sin did come, but he never intended or designed for sin to happen. <clears throat> Here's a beautiful quote that puts all that together again, uh, pre-sin, Desire of Ages 21. But turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not mine own glory, but the glory of him that sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things Christ received from God, but he took to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. That basically summarizes what we're talking about. It's very, very powerful. This is an imperfect universe, right? This is how everything operated. And the circuit of beneficence is complete through whom? Through Christ. So if you take Christ out of the picture, it is incomplete. It cannot function in this harmonious, perfect way. And this is why Christ is referred to as the wisdom of God. Christ, in essence, takes us by the hand, or takes you know these, these beings by the hand, 
into the court of the king and show us shows us how to behave. You know, if you go meet the queen, queen of England, if you could go, you couldn't just walk in and, and just do your thing. There are people there who will actually tell you what you should wear, where you stand, what you do when she comes in, what you know, all the different whatever positions and posi it's not just a random thing. There is a, there is etiquette. There is there is an order where you could uh, uh, how you should behave in the presence of royalty. Uh, you realize that, right? And so, this is a much greater picture that we have. Christ, in essence, takes us by the hand to show us what it's like to live in God's universe, God's perfect universe. Here's what it's like. This is what it looks like to submit to the Father. This is what it looks like to serve each other. Christ was that connecting link. So if we were to illustrate that, this is what it would look like. Uh, Christ is the begotten of God. He received all things from the Father and through the Son. All things were created, all created beings, and they receive love and life, and they receive fullness of blessing. And this is what God does. He gives. And he didn't program any feedback to return to him. All the feedback that is given is given based on free choice. That is praise. That is joyous service and love to the creator, which comes back through the sun. And this is, we're told, the universal law of life. This is just an illustration of the quote we just read in Zara Pages. Okay. Now, if you think about that, this is, this is how a family is designed to operate even on earth. If you have a home, a father and a mother. And the, the fact that when, when it starts coming back is not something that God pre-programmed. It is actually free choice. It is actually done freely because of a recognition that all things come from, the, from God, life and blessing. And it comes with no cost of well, now you have to worship me. Now you have to do this because I gave you all that. This is not how God functions. He just gives. And so the free, uh, you know, free worship and service and love that is returned back to God is so much more treasured by God than a pre-programmed return. That's why God made us a free moral agent. That's why God actually appreciates and treasures when we freely choose to serve him out of a recognition of his goodness and his greatness. This part here of the circle is not pre-programmed. That's voluntary. As these beings recognize this part that God did. This is the part that God does. This is the response. And so it makes a complete circle. A one happy, perfect family in the whole universe. Until someone decided to upset that happy circle. And this is where we start coming into the picture. Now, uh, well, before we go on, let me read another quote here from the book Maranatha. How other beings, gives us an insight how other beings learned about God through Christ. It says, the Lord has given me a view of other worlds. Wings were given me and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of the place was living green and the birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of that place were of all sizes and they were noble, majestic and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus and their countenances beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. That's an interesting description, right? That's what these beings, perfect. This is a, a world that hasn't fallen. These beings, they look noble, majestic, and lovely. But then it says they bore the express image of who? Of Jesus. Interesting, right? Not the Father. But Jesus is the express image of the Father. So they were actually representing the character of the Father that they as creatures could be like. 
not the things that they could not be like where he is God. You with me? It's the things they could be like. And the things that they could be like, they learn by looking at Christ. And so they bore the express image of Jesus. They were changed by beholding. That's what was happening there. Because Christ is expression image of the Father. He and his Father are one, we are told. He says, he that hath seen me has seen the Father. All these aspects, Christ was that as the wisdom of God. They're not just things that started when he came to earth as a man. It's the things that qualified him to come to earth and be our human savior, human and divine, of course. <clears throat> and so this is why we're saying, it puts a, it puts a totally, it totally destroys this picture to, to believe that the reason God had a son is so that he could later on sacrifice him, right? It totally war it warps that picture. It actually is, is a little bit, a little bit crude. Maybe sometimes we don't express it in that crude way, but it is a common theme. And how we perceive that can have an impact on how much we appreciate the wisdom and love that God has for us. <clears throat> sometimes uh, this particular reasoning actually turns people off from the truth. I have heard it uh, as well that people say, well, you know, God had a son because he saw the need for uh, salvation and sin and he needed a sacrifice. So he had a son and some Trinitarians say that sounds horrible. And you know what? It does. I agree with them in that regard. That does sound horrible. This is not a loving picture of the God of the universe and how or why he had his son. It actually was for a perfect universe. That's why it was even hard for the God of heaven when it came time to actually give his son to die. Because God never, ever intended for that to happen to his son. It wasn't, okay, here it is. This is why you came into existence. You were, it's, it's, it's the exact opposite. And so it does have an impact on how we view, how we understand, and therefore how we respond. <clears throat> uh, why am I saying that? Was it possible? Uh, let, let, me, let me just uh, back up uh, a little bit here. The problem of sin. Was it possible to avoid the problem of sin? Okay, all right. We have very slow. Either you're, you're asleep or you're not sure. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. Yes, we have some, some awake people. Yes, of course. It was possible. In other words, the scenario that happened with Adam falling in this world, is one of many scenarios that could have happened. Maybe our world did, uh, you know, it was possible for Adam not to eat. Our world did not need to fall. Then a different story would have been uh, the case. A different scenario would have happened. Maybe it was another world that would have fallen. And so when we make the sonship of Christ based on this one scenario of the fall of humanity and the redemption for humanity. And we say, well, you know, God had a son because he wanted to sacrifice him or, or in order to save mankind. We actually make sin as the basis for the sonship of Christ. You with me? We make the sonship of Christ, the, the, the sole reason that God had a son was because of sin. So sin becomes the basis of sonship. That's not a very loving picture. That's an emergency picture. And so that is not the case. Christ was the wisdom of God for a perfect universe, a sin-free universe. And it could have remained a sin-free universe. Could Lucifer have repented in heaven? 
Would Christ have had to die? No. Things would have continued in a perfect way. So, Christ, so the son was not destined to be sacrificed. It did not have to happen. We're told that in, in great controversy. I just want to read it in case you're wondering. It says, long, long was he, that's Lucifer, retained in heaven. Again and again he was offered pardon and condition of repentance and submission. But as his dissatisfaction was proved to be without cause, Lucifer was convinced that he was in the wrong, that the divine claims were just, and that he ought to acknowledge them as such before all heaven. Had he done this, he might have saved himself and many angels. Though he had forsaken his position as covering cherub, yet if he had been willing to return to God, acknowledging the Creator's wisdom, and satisfied to fill the place, appointed him in God's great plan, he would have been reinstated in his office. But pride forbade him to submit. That would have been a very different story and scenario in the universe based on the decision of this being, Lucifer. That one decision that he made destined the Son of God in order to save us. And of course, Adam's decision as well following because Adam didn't have to fall either. But the, the, the point we're making here is that it did not have to happen the way we are experiencing right now. What has happened is really the worst case scenario. You know why it's the worst case scenario? Because the Son of God had to die. He died. He ended up dying. It could have happened in a way where he didn't have to die. Well, I guess it could be worse if he did not defeat Satan. So it's the worst, it's the best in a worst case scenario. Christ has defeated Satan. So if Lucifer could have repented, and his repentance here, notice a very interesting point, was not based on anyone dying, right? It was based on condition of repentance and submission. He would have been reinstated, he would have saved himself and the angels, but he was too proud. In other words, it tells us that in heaven, Lucifer realized that he was on the wrong path. God showed him this path would end in death and destruction. And the right thing for him to do was to return. But he was too proud to admit that he was right and he was wrong and God was right. Because he had a following, you see. He had some fans and the fans were supporting his idea. And so pride forbade him from returning. This is why Lucifer, when he was cast out, that was it for him. There was no more hope for him. Because he rejected that offer of pardon and being reinstated. <coughs> And this is why, when sin did happen to this earth, and the only way to save man that God saw would be possible, was if he would sacrifice his own son. It was a difficult decision. Because what God was doing, brothers and sisters, and maybe we realize that hopefully in, in this picture we're painting, what God was doing is he was literally risking the whole universe in order to save us. Because Christ was the one that completed the circle of beneficence, right? We saw that earlier. He's the one that, in whom all things consist. He was risking losing his son in order to redeem us. We have no idea what would have happened to the universe if his son had lost. We really have no idea. It's not just that this world would have been lost and humanity would have been lost and oops, okay, and the universe continues as it was. We have no idea the ramifications of what Christ did when he was here on earth meeting Satan. He knew that. Christ knew that. Satan knew that. It was winner take all. 
You may, can you imagine the news that would have spread through the universe if Christ is, maybe I should ask you this first. Was it possible for Christ to fail? Was it possible for him to sin? Okay, so the failure was a real option. It was a real possibility. So if he died, when he died, he would not have been resurrected. Can you imagine the news that would have spread in the universe? Satan was right. God was wrong. Praise God, we, can only, we, we only have to imagine it and say, I don't know what would have happened. Praise God, Christ won, and we don't have that problem. But this helps us appreciate, brothers and sisters, what it means when the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And of course, the rebellion, let me speed up here because <clears throat> our time is running. Uh, the rebellion in heaven, when, Christ, uh, when Satan broke this circuit of beneficence, who he rebelled against was the son, and particularly the authority of the son. He was next in Christ in honor, and next in Christ uh, to Christ in position in heaven, Lucifer was. And uh, this is what we're told happened. Satan and his sympathizers were striving to reform the government of God. They didn't like how God had set it up. It needed to be reformed. Some, some changes needed to be made. They were discontented, unhappy, and unhappy, excuse me, because they could not look into his unsearchable wisdom and ascertain his purposes in exalting his son Jesus and endowing him with such unlimited power and command. They rebelled against the authority of the son. This is what the great controversy is about. It doesn't say anything about the law, right? The law is a secondary aspect that comes, that comes in later. The law is an expression of whose authority you recognize. But the question, the core question is authority. Lucifer was rebelling against the authority of the son. And the authority of the son is based on the fact that he is the son. He is the wisdom of God. He has, by inheritance, all these aspects. This is why he is exalted above all else. <clears throat> and this is why, in rebelling against the authority of the son, they questioned and attacked the sonship, the basis of that authority. Here's what we're told. We read this earlier, but I'll read it again. Angels were expelled from heaven because they would not work in harmony with God. They fell from their high estate because they wanted to be exalted. They had come to exalt themselves and they forgot that their beauty of person and of character came from the Lord Jesus. This fact, the fallen angels would obscure that Christ was the only begotten Son of God. And they came to consider that they were not to consult Christ. One angel began the controversy and carried it on until there was rebellion in the heavenly courts among the angels. This is how they rebelled against the authority of the Son, by obscuring the fact that He is the only begotten Son of God. That's the basis of His authority. That tells you a lot today as to what it means when people deny the Sonship of Christ. Perhaps some people don't realize the full ramifications of what that means. Satan is very clever. Lucifer is very clever. He knows what he's doing. The authority and whose authority you will recognize is the big question in the great controversy. That's what the whole temptation in the wilderness was about. If you are the son of God, prove it. If you have this authority, prove it. And then it was a battle of authorities. Recognize my authority by worshiping me. I'll give you all these things. It's a battle of authority. Lucifer could not be what Christ was, and he hated that. He wanted God's 
power and privileges of being God without the character of love and service and self-sacrifice. And so the loyal angels defended Christ. It says, angels that were loyal and true sought to reconcile this mighty rebellious angel to the will of, of his creator. They clearly set forth that Jesus was the son of God, existing with him before the angels were created. And that he had never stood at the right hand of God. And that his mild loving authority had not heretofore been questioned. And that he had given no commands, but there was joy for the heavenly host to execute. The angels, the loyal angels in heaven, they not only believed that Christ was the Son of God, but they defended that. And that's what the controversy was about in this battle in heaven. This issue is hardly addressed when talking about the great controversy. It's hardly ever touched on. The sonship of Christ and the authority of Christ that is based on that sonship. This is why when we preach that Christ is the begotten Son of God, this is what we are, this is the, the, the logical conclusion of what we're trying to say. It's not just, oh, you need to accept that. It means something to accept that. Accepting that is to accept and recognize his authority. And this is what the devil has a problem with. So I want to give you a warning here, a friendly warning. If you promote the sonship of Christ, the devil's got you in his sights. Because you are establishing, by doing that, you are establishing the authority of the Son. He cannot stand that. He will do everything in his power to squash that. That's why you get, whenever when you, when you promote the Son or you, or you share the Sonship of Christ, this happens all the time. People are very surprised how sometimes the church reacts or people in the church start treating them or friends all of a sudden turn out that they weren't such great friends as they thought they were. And, and all kind, even family members, all kinds of strange things all of a sudden begin to happen when you begin to promote the fact that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know, I, we could have a testimony time. Come and share with us some of the... You, everybody has a story. I know I've heard some of them. Unexpected behavior, strange things, strange spirit even, you know, being revealed. And you think, I never expected this brother, this sister to act this way. I never expected my church to treat me this way. You know what the real... You know who is behind the scenes instigating this opposition it comes from the mind of lucifer he cannot stand that christ is the only begotten son he hates that because it's an establishment of his authority this is what lucifer was doing he was departing from the wisdom of god Bible says the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom lucifer was departing from the wisdom of god. not the attribute from the treasure house of god's wisdom and knowledge he wanted to be like the Most High. Who was in the way? Christ. And so he had a problem with Christ. That's what the Son of God is all about. And so on earth, Christ's authority was also questioned. Matthew 21, verse 23. It says, When he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Question of authority. That's what the great controversy was about. What had happened to prompt this question from the Pharisees? Christ had just cleansed the temple. Matthew 21, 12 tells us, Jesus went into the temple and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And so it's a very important question. They come to him and they basically tell him, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority? By what authority do you do these things? 
This, brothers and sisters, is the question in the great controversy. Do you recognize the authority of the Son as the Son? Or do you question or deny his authority as the Son? You know how you can deny his authority? By denying his sonship. Because his sonship is the foundation of his authority. That comes from the Father. In recognizing the authority of the Son as the Son, that establishes the Father's position as the source of that authority. He is the legitimate backup and source of that authority. If you say, no, he's not really a son, but he has authority, that's an independent authority from the Father. And this is exactly what Lucifer desired to accomplish. Now, this question Jesus answers, because the Pharisees, I think it's pretty obvious, who was the inspiration behind the rejection of Christ? Christ answers the question, but they were not really uh, for the answer. This is how Christ begins to answer this question. And the exchange is very interesting because it reveals something. Matthew 21, verses 24 to 27. Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you will tell me, and likewise will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. They were trying to be smart and outsmart Christ, so Christ met them on their ground. He asked them a question, basically. He says, you're asking a question of authority? Okay, John's authority, who was it? They knew if, he, if they acknowledged John's authority, John confirmed or affirmed Christ's authority. And so they said, no, no, no. They, they came out of their huddle and they said, we, we, we know nothing. And that's what they said, we don't know. Yeah, it's a mystery. That's a good one. It's a mystery. And so Christ told us. So obviously what was happening, their minds were not ready to receive truth. They were blocked. This is what was happening. So Christ says, well, I can't tell you either. If you're not ready to acknowledge a simple thing like that, then you're not ready to acknowledge a greater truth that would actually answer your question. But Christ still wanted them to know the truth. And uh, in the following passages, in the, uh, a little later, he gives them two parables that actually answer their question. And the question is a question of authority. In Matthew 21, verses 33 to 38, he gives the parable. He says, there was a certain householder. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. I'm just quoting the relevant portion. I'm not going to read the whole story. But you know the householder? He let out his vineyard and he sent servants. They got beaten up. Then he says, I will send my son. Two outstanding characters in the parable. A householder and his son. And the authority is based on the sonship. The next one he gives is in 22, Matthew 22, the next chapter. Uh, the first three verses. It says, the kingdom of God is, uh, of heaven sorry, is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Same thing, two characters, a king and his son. And then he goes on to tell the story. And he's giving them these parables and they were listening. What he was doing, he was answering their question as to the source of his authority. He's the son of God. But they were not ready to receive. They were not ready, uh, uh, you know, for open communication. So he says, okay. So he gives them a parable. And these, this is illustrative of the source of his authority. And then at the end of that chapter, at the end of Matthew 22, he comes back and asks them openly. And this is a very interesting passage as well. 
And here is what it says from verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Have you ever wondered about this passage? I have. Because I thought, you know, the Jews, the Pharisees, they gave the right answer. What's wrong with this answer that they gave? The Messiah was going to be the son of David. But obviously, this is not the answer that Jesus was looking for. Because he told them, okay, well, that's true. But how does David call him Lord? Obviously, he preceded David. What's the answer Jesus was looking for? The son of God. That's the answer Christ, that's the answer he's trying to get them to think about. But they would not acknowledge that, so they went quiet. They could not answer. He was giving them the answer to the source of his authority. The sonship of Christ, brothers and sisters, it's about the authority of the Son. The idea that God is a trinity, by destroying the sonship of Christ, destroys the authority of Christ and gives him an illegitimate authority that does not come from the Father. Satan is happy about that. That's why he made it up. You know, I didn't understand this passage until I understood the truth about God. Then the, the passage made sense. Like, oh, he's trying to tell them that, you know, about his sonship. What they were refusing to acknowledge him to be, that he is the son of God. And this is why Lucifer desired to hide this. And this is why Lucifer fought hard against this when he was when Christ was on earth. And this is why it's still being fought against to this very day. The basis of Christ's divine authority is his sonship. And then, <coughs> excuse me, we come back to this passage we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.24. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Does that passage make a little bit more sense now after what we talked about? All of a sudden, it's a lot more meaningful, right? Christ, the power of God, that's his authority, that's his divine authority, and the wisdom of God. It's who he is, who he was always from the beginning. And what he demonstrated on earth as a man, he demonstrated the same thing. Loving submission to the Father, uh, revealing what the Father is like, establishing the fact that his authority comes from God. And hate, Satan hated that. And when he behaved and operated on earth, he was operating by the authority of him being the only begotten son of God. When he kicked people out of the temple, when he healed people, when he forgave people, all these are exercises of his authority as the son. And we're going to see as well uh, an example of that. Notice how this becomes very relevant to us. It says, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But in 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ is the wisdom of God for us. If you think about that for a minute. Christ is the treasure house of all wisdom and knowledge. Christ is imbued with divine authority from his Father. And Christ is made unto us wisdom. It's a powerful thing, brothers and sisters, when we have Christ. You realize that? It's a very powerful thing. Satan knows that. Do we know that? That's the question. And that's <clears throat> the challenge. 
when we recognize the sun, we submit to the sun. When we accept him as the sun, we come under his authority. And you know what the sun does? He gives us the right to use his authority in the battle with sin and Satan. He authorizes us with his authority to engage in this great controversy. You realize that? And so the truth about God is not just another idea. It is a powerful truth. The fact that Christ is the begotten Son of God is powerful. This is not just words. It is really. Satan knows that. Satan knows how powerful it is. See how hard he tries to hide it. Do we really realize and understand? That's what happens when we become partakers of Christ. We partake of his authority. And of course, you know, when we talk, someone will say, look, this brother is talking about the great controversy. He didn't mention the law once or obedience once in the whole thing. It goes without saying, but I will say it. When you recognize the authority of the Son, of course, that's going to be it will manifest in a recognition of the authority of His law in the life. Of course. But it's not the end of the story. That's not it. It's not just obey the commandments, all done. Christ came to defeat sin and Satan, and this is what He wants to accomplish in our life. He uses that authority. This authority is power. It is power over all the power of the enemy. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What's another word for power there? Authority. Receiving Christ, you receive authority. It's not just any authority. It's the authority of him as the only begotten son of God. Satan cannot stand that. That's why he wants to hide that fact. He diffuses the power and the authority of the son by removing the basis for it, the sonship. And woe unto you if you go telling people about that. That's what the devil is. Watch these guys. They're promoting the sun. Okay. Attack. And that's what happens. So don't be surprised by all the, you know, fire of persecution that meets you. Don't be surprised by all the confusing ideas that come knocking. And sometimes they don't knocking. They come barging through the doors among us as when we believe the truth of God. Don't be surprised that every strange idea and doctrine comes floating in. And people think, well, you know, if this is the truth, why are there so many ideas? Because Satan is not happy about those who promote the sonship of Christ. That's why. He seeks to cause confusion. How much is that? Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give unto you power, Jesus said, to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Wow. Christ is giving his disciples his very own authority. And that's contained in his name. When Jesus tells us, or you know, tells his disciples and us, you know, when you ask anything in my Father's name and you do these things in my name, in his name is in his authority. In his name as the only begotten Son of God. That's what that means. He is authorizing us to make use of his authority and his power. Wow, if we only realize that. Satan was there when he heard this being declared by Christ. You realize that? He knows what it is. The question is, do we know what it is? Notice how Christ met Satan. Luke 4, 36. And, when, uh, and they were all amazed and spake among themselves, saying, What word is this? For with authority and power he commandeth the unclean spirits, and they come out. What authority? The authority of him being the Son of God. Don't you remember when he met those devils? What is it that they, that they declared when they see him? We know who you are. You are the son of God or the son of the highest or the son of most high God. What have we to do with thee? They trembled because he came as that son. They know who he was. 
And it's that sonship that was the basis of the authority by which he commanded them with great... The people were surprised. They said, how is this? The devils are subject to him. The devil is subject to the authority of the son, brothers and sisters. If you have the son, you have the same authority. Is that your experience? You know, putting it this way, we think, man, I haven't been a very powerful Christian, huh? Do we realize what we have? This is what we're trying to share. The sonship of Christ. It is a powerful truth, literally. That's why he's called the wisdom of God. And he is the power of God. Does the son have authority over your life, over my life? That's the question. Only the son can make us free, brothers and sisters. And that freedom is a freedom from sin and from Satan. Only the son can make that freedom. And that's why Satan has been busy trying to destroy that. That's why there's so much hatred against the truth about the Son of God. And that's why it is the key to understanding the whole thing about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all hinged on the Son of God. You got that right, everything will fall in place. If you get that wrong, it opens the door to all kinds of other things. You see, the devil is not a gentleman. He will not leave just because you don't want him to hang around. He needs to be cast out. He had to be cast out of heaven. And he needs to, just like Jesus, you know, cleansed the temple. He cast out all these people. That's representative. The devil needs to be cast out of the soul temple. The only way that is possible is through the authority of the Son. So when you claim to believe the truth about God, when you claim to believe in the Sonship of Christ, don't forget that with that comes this authority. You know, there was a, there was a story in the Bible when... Uh, there were some people who heard Paul casting out devils, and he did it in Jesus' name. There were seven sons, the Bible says, of, of, in the book of Acts, of one Siva. And, uh, and they said, well, we'll go do that. And they went and they said, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, you know, they wanted to cast out the devils, a man possessed. I don't know if you remember the story, but the man pounced on them and basically beat them up and tore their clothes off, and they went running. You can read it in the book of Acts, if you remember the story. And the interesting thing that this de the devil-possessed man said was this. He says, Paul I know, and Jesus I know, but who are you? That's what happened. Here's a question that we can learn from this, brothers and sisters. Does the devil know your name? Or not? In the context of that story. You see, they were claiming the name of Jesus without acknowledging Jesus as Lord and Savior. They were just using it as a formula. Because, in other words, they did not have his authority. And so the devil beat them up. Is the devil beating us up in our Christian experience, in our walk? Are we getting beaten up and, you know, bloodied and clothes torn off? Metaphorically, right? You understand the, the, the picture here? Or does the devil know your name do we have the authority of the son does the devil actually have to think twice before he comes to to meet you or they say oh don't worry about him he's only a christian by name this is the real challenge this is the real question of do you believe in the truth about god it's not just yeah i accept it what does it look like in your experience what does it look like in my experience that's the truth that we believe and preach brothers and sisters i pray that we will take it to heart. And we realize that this is how the great controversy is going to be decided. Who will recognize the authority of the Son? Who will be in that circuit of beneficence? And who will be outside of it? It's all hinging on the Son. Yes, Brother Paul, you've got a comment. 
Thank you. That's that's a good point. I'll just share it so it's on the recording. Uh, that we're told that uh, humanity was to repopulate and refill the place that Lucifer and his angels made vacant. And so he has a special hatred, especially for the human race. And the fact that Christ, of all the beings in the universe, took on our race. He became one of us. In heaven now, sitting on the throne with God is a human being. That automatically makes the human race the most privileged race in the entire universe of God. Wow. So yeah, we've had a bad run with sin. The makeup is really good. So I pray we'll take these things to heart, brothers and sisters, and we will indeed allow the Son and the authority of the Son to make us free. And we will be free indeed. This is what the truth means. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.